Section 11 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 6b Psychological Warfare in World War II, Part 2. On the German side, the German radio had the forced attention of the entire world. As long as the Germans had the strategic initiative for field warfare, they were in a position to make new scoops whenever it suited them. The security policies of the Allies often gave the Germans a monopoly of news on a given operation. There was never any danger that the Germans were not listened in on. The danger the Nazi operators had to worry about was disbelief. Hence the Germans tried to keep a moderate tone in their news, tried to prepare between crisis for the news that would become sensational during crisis. The Germans soon learned a basic principle of war radio. They learned not to permit radio to run ahead of their military capacities. At first, when their spokesman promised attainment of a given goal by a given time, and the army failed to live up to the schedule, the British radio picked up the unfulfilled promise and dangled it before the world as proof that the Germans were weakening. The Germans thereupon affected army radio liaison so that the radio people could promise only those things which the army was reasonably sure of delivering. When Allied propaganda analysis welcomed to this fact, it added one more source of collaboratory intelligence to be checked. The British had their hands full getting news out in the languages of the occupied countries. It was immensely difficult for them to follow the politics of the underground. German counter-espionage under the deadly Shisher Highstand made it difficult to keep track of opinion in the occupied countries. Work against Nazism depended on the temper of the people. Propaganda against collaborators had to distinguish between outright evil collaborators and those public officials who stayed on out of a sense of mistaken or necessary duty. The British did not necessarily announce themselves at any time as anti-communists and collaborated for short-range purposes with communists all over the continent. Mr. Churchill himself shifted his North Balkan political support from Mikhailovich to Bras Tito, but it was vitally necessary to know just how and when to change support from one group to the other. Since the undergrounds had very few radio transmitters, and none of these was reliable during most of the war, the British faced the task of providing radio facilities for all of the occupied countries. The consequence was to make their radio warfare highly sensitive to politics. They had to address the right people with the right language at the right time, on penalty of failure. To effect this end, the British set up an agency which never had an American counterpart. The political warfare executive, known by its initials PWE, this agency had representation from the War Office, the Admiralty, the Foreign Office, and the Ministry of Information. The PWE was the policy servicing coordinating agency for all British external propaganda. 
and left the execution of his operations to the Ministry of Information, MOI, and to the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC. British radio propaganda maintained a high level of effectiveness. American officials and propagandists often complained that the British were running the entire war in their own national interest. The charge was unjust. The British had facilities for knowing exactly what they wished to do and when they wished to do it. The Americans came along without clear policies or propaganda purposes. It was natural that the British should take the lead and let the Americans string along if they wished. Furthermore, the British were usually scrupulous in yielding to America's primary interests in areas they felt to be American problems. Japan, China, the Philippines. They were least cooperative when the OWI tried to spread the ideals of Mr. Henry Wallace in Burma or to explain the CIOPAC to the Hindus. No clear victor emerged from the Anglo-German radio war. The victory of the United Nations gave the British the last say. In the opinion of many, the British were one more ahead of the United States. They have profited by their World War I experience and by their two years operational lead which they had on the Americans. But side by side with the Germans, it is harder to appraise their net achievements. The British had immense political advantages. The resentment of a conquered continent worked for them, but they had disadvantages too. The enemy worked from the starting point of a fanatical and revolutionary philosophy. The British had the tedious old world to offer. The post-war interrogations of civilians in Germany show that an amazingly high proportion of them had heard BBC broadcasts and that many of the ideas and attitudes which the British propagandized were actually transmitted to the enemy. On the British side, it is almost impossible to find any surviving traces of the effect of Nazi propaganda. Had the war been purely a radio war, this test might be conclusive. But if psychological warfare supplements combat, combat certainly supplements propaganda. The Great British and American air raids over Europe unquestionably created an intense interest in British and American plans and purposes. It is historically interesting to note that the Germans went on fighting psychological warfare even after the death of Hitler and the surrender of the jury-rigged government of Grass Admiral Karl Duens, which functioned 623 May 1945 at Flensburg under Allied toleration. This resulted from the inability of the 21st Army Group swiftly to initiate information control. The Flensburg Radio, still under Nazi direction, emphasized Anglo-American differences with the Soviet Union in every possible way short of direct appeals. German naval radio also carried on propaganda for a while, using topics such as the sportsmanship of the German surrender the hatred of the German Navy for atrocities committed by the Nazis, and the usefulness of the phantom government to the Western Allies.
black propaganda. Subversive operations formed a major part of the Nazi pre-belligerent effort. The Germans planted or converted quislings whenever they could, and when they failed to have time to pre-arrange stooges, they converted them rapidly after arrival. A major cause of the German defeat is to be found in the fantastic political policies followed in the Ukraine and neighboring Soviet Socialist Republics. In these areas, despite the Soviet boast that Russia had no fifth columnists within her borders, the Germans found thousands of helpers. The Nazis organized a large army, General Valsa's Russian Army of Liberation, out of Soviet prisoners, and these troops were usable and docile. But in the political warfare field, the Germans were too cocksure. They let their men go wild in orgies of cruelty against the local population. The economic system went entirely to pieces. The natives then became convinced that the worst possible conditions of Sovietism were infinitely better than the best that Nazism could offer. These subversive groups were formed by political means. Propaganda aid was offered to such an extent that it was often difficult to tell how much of the Quisling movement was spontaneously native and how much mere cover for a purely German operation. In the latter phase of the European war, the Russian communists followed the German Nazi example of having tame natives ready to take over the government of the occupied areas. In Poland, the so-called Lublin Committee took over the government from the constitutional Polish government in exile at London. In Yugoslavia, the Russian-trained propagandist Tito seized the leadership from the recognized Minister of War, Dreja Mikhailovich, after the British and American governments had shifted their support to him. Later, Mikhailovich was put to death. The Russian army brought along to Germany a considerable number of German communists. In Czechoslovakia, the strength of the constitutional regime was such as to compel the pro-Russians to allow the pre-war leadership a precarious toehold in the new government. The same cadres of sympathetic persons who has been useful as propaganda sources for psychological warfare during the period of hostilities became useful instruments of domination after hostilities ended. The British and Americans, with their belief that government should spring from the liberated and defeated peoples, did not prepare and equip comparable groups to rival the communist candidates. Only in Italy and Greece did the friends of the Western Allies stay in power, and then only because they were the nearest equivalent of de jure authorities. In the Scandinavian and the Low Countries, the national leadership re-emerged without prodding or interference by the Western Allies. They passed from the sphere of psychological warfare that is, of being someone's coverage is that of world politics. Specific black propaganda operations were of considerable value. However, black propaganda is more difficult to appraise than overt propaganda. Analytical and historical studies 
gauging the results obtained by black operations in relation to their cost, are not yet available. American Operations, OWI and OSS Long after the outbreak of war in the Far East, and even after the coming of full war in Europe, neither the civilian nor military portions of the American government possessed propaganda facilities. This is not as serious as it may sound, for the United States is lucky in possessing a people well agreed on most fundamentals. The commercial press, radio, magazine, and book publishing facilities of the country, for the most part, expressed a national point of view without being prodded. The isolationist issue never brought in the question of America's basic character. Before the war and even after the government entered the field, private American news and publishing continued to engage in operations which had the effect, if not the intention, of propaganda. OWI, at its most vigorous, could scarcely have reached the audience that had been built up by the Time Life Fortune Group, not to mention the Reader's Digest, both of which became truly global in coverage during the war years. American movies already had a worldwide audience. The propaganda turned out unwittingly by such agencies may not have had the gloss and political smoothness of Dr. Paul Joseph Goebbels' best productions, but it had something no government propaganda had, the possession of a readership all of which was unmistakably voluntary, obtained by the appeal of authentic interest in entertainment, and proves by an ability to charm money out of people's pockets. The American problem of propaganda was thus not a simple one. Total psychological warfare was out of reach if we were to remain a free people. Otherwise, the simple seeming thing to have done would have been to put a government supervisor in every newspaper, radio station, and magazine in the country, according to the whole bunch of them to gather the national interest. Simple seeming. Actually, such an attempt would have been utter madness. Touching off a furious political fight within the country and meeting legal obstacles which would have remained instrumental as long as there was a constitution with courts to enforce it. The simplest official action which the United States could take was therefore hedged about by the presence of private competitors who would watch it enviously, jealous of their established rights and privileges, and by the operational interference which vigorous private media would have on public media. The then Mr. or Colonel, later General William Donovan, had tasted the delights of political warfare and President Roosevelt sent him to Belgrade to talk the Serbs into fighting instead of surrendering. He was successful. The Serbs fought. He came back to the United States with a practical knowledge of what political warfare could do if qualified personnel operated on the spot. The outbreak of the Russo-German War lent urgency to American action in the political intelligence field as well as in the propaganda field. On 11 July 1941, President Roosevelt issued an order appointing Colonel Donovan as coordinator of information. 
The agency became known by the initial COI. The primary mission of COI was the collection of information and its processing for immediate use. Large numbers of experts were brought into its research and analysis branch, designed to do for the United States in weeks what the research facilities of the Germans and Japanese had done for them over a matter of years. The inflow of material was tremendous and the gearing of scholarship to the war effort produced large quantities of political, sociological, geographic, economic, and other monographs, most of them carefully classified secret. Even when they were copied out of books in the Library of Congress, However, it was not the research wing of the COI that entered the broadcasting field. Radio work was first done by an agency within COI called FIS, Foreign Information Service. In the few months before Pearl Harbor, the group became organized in New York under the leadership of Robert Sherwood, the dramatist, and got his start in supplying the radio companies with material. The radio scripts were poorly checked. There was chaos in the matter of policy. Little policing was possible, and the outputs reflected the enthusiasm of whatever individual happened to be near the microphone. Colonel Donovan had moved into this work without written and exclusive authorization from the White House, hence there followed a lamentable interval of almost two years internal struggle between American agencies, a struggle not really settled until the summer of 1943, well into the second year of war. The occasion for struggle arose from lack of uniform day-to-day -day propaganda policy and from an unclear division of authority between the operating agencies, but the work was done. Radio operations had to be coordinated with strategy on the one hand and foreign policy on the other, and we sought to develop methods for doing this. It is significant that all the major difficulties of American psychological warfare were administrative and not operational. There was never any serious trouble about getting the facilities, the writers, the translators, the telecommunications technicians, what caused trouble were problems of personality and personal power, resulting chiefly from the lack of any consensus on the method or organization of propaganda administration. Military Intelligence Division had created an extremely secret psychological warfare office at about the same time that CCOI was established. This had brought intelligence and policy functions but no operational facilities. It was headed by Lieutenant Colonel Percy Black, who began auspiciously by putting Dr. Edwin Guthrie in office as his senior psychological advisor. This ultra-quiet office was called Special Study Group. It and the COI developed very loose cooperative relations, consisting chiefly of SSG making suggestions to COI what COI might or might not use as it saw fit. Meanwhile, the Rockefeller office was conducting independent broadcasts to Latin America. The Office of Facts and Figures was dispensing domestic information. 
and at the height of the psychological warfare campaigning, there were at least nine unrelated agencies in Washington, all directly connected with psychological warfare, and none actually subject to the control of any of the others. A year of wrangling produced the solution after a Joint Psychological Warfare Committee had been set up under the Joint Chiefs of Staff and had failed to fulfill an effective policy supervising function. On 13 June 1942, the President created the Office of War Information. This agency was given control directly or indirectly over all domestic propaganda and over white propaganda abroad, except for the Western Hemisphere, which remained under the Rockefeller Committee in the State Department. The FIS was taken from the COI, and the COI took on the new name of OSS, Office of Strategic Services, under which it retained three major functions. Number one, continuation of scholastic and informal intelligence. Number two, black propaganda operations given explicit authority only in March 1943. Number three, subversive operations in collaboration with regular military authority. The OWI was placed under Mr. Elmer Davis, a Rhodes Scholar and novelist who has become one of the nation's most popular radio commentators. The FIS was perpetuated under the control of Mr. Robert Sherwood, who had a most extraordinary courtier of odd personalities assisting him, socialist refugees, advertising men, psychologists, psychoanalytics of both the licensed and lay varieties, professional promoters, theatrical types, German professors, a commercial attaché, young men just out of college, oil executives, and popular authors, novelists, slick writers, Pulitzer winners, pulp writers, humorists, poets, and a professional pro-Japanese writer, fresh off the Imperial Japanese Embassy payroll. The War Department Agency under the Military Intelligence Service of G2 had been renamed Psychological Warfare Branch and had executed within the G2 structure the equivalent of a knight's move in chess, ending up at a new place on the two with no observable change in function or authority. It had passed under the authority of Colonel, later Brigadier General Oscar Solbert, a West Pointer with wide international and business experience. He had been out of the army as a top official with Eastman Kodak, after a cosmopolitan army career, was sent him all over Europe and gave him one tour of duty as a White House aide. With the establishment of OWI, Colonel Solbert's office visited parted like an amoeba. The civilian half of psychological warfare branch, with a few officers, went over to OWI to be a brain trust for the foreign broadcast experts who failed to welcome this accession of talent. The military half remained as an MIS agency until 31 December 1943, when OWI abolished its half and MIS cooperated 
by wiping out the other, leaving the War Department in the middle of a war with no official psychological warfare agency whatever, merely some liaison officers. Psychological warfare became the responsibility of designated individual officers in OPD, the Operations Division of the General Staff, an outfit celebrated for conscientious overwork, as well as MIS and the War Department got along very nicely. Meanwhile, OWI and OSS fought one of the many battles of Washington, each seeking control of the foreign propaganda. The D.C. and Manhattan newspapers ran columns on this fight, along with news of the fighting in Russia, Libya, and the Pacific. For one glorious moment of OSS, it seems that the president had signed over all foreign propaganda functions conducted outside the United States to OSS, cutting the OWI out of everything except its New York and San Francisco transmitters. The OWI was stricken with gloom and collective indigestion. The next day, the mistake was rectified, and OWI triumphantly planned raids on the jurisdiction of OSS. Meanwhile, the following things were happening. Highly classified plans for psychological warfare were being drafted for both the Joint and Combined Chiefs of Staff. These were discussed at various meetings and then classified a little higher, whereupon they were locked up, lest the propaganda writers and broadcasters see them and break security on them by obeying and applying them. Broadcasts, thousands of words and dozens of languages were transmitted to everyone on earth. They were written by persons who had little if any contact with federal policy and none with the military establishment except for formal security. The plans at the top bore no observable relation to the operations at the bottom. When the Washington agencies wanted to find out what the broadcasts really were saying, the actual working offices at New York and San Francisco, their feelings hurt at not having been consulted by their joint chiefs, refused on their security ground to let anyone see a word of what they were sending out. This baffled other Washington agencies a great deal. The author, who was then detailed from the War Department to OWI, outflanked this move in one instance by getting a report on a San Francisco Japanese broadcast from the Navy Department. It had been monitored by an American submarine out in the Pacific. Large overseas offices were set up at various foreign locations. Some of these went down to work quickly, efficiently, smoothly, and did a first-class job of presenting wartime America to foreign peoples. Others, with the frailties of jerry-built government agencies, lapsed into inefficiency, wild goose chases, or internal quarrels. Lastly, the poor British officials continued to wander around Washington, looking for their American opposite numbers in the propaganda fields, looking for one and always finding a dozen. 
This was in 1942 to 1943. By 1945, this had all become transformed into a large, well-run, well-integrated organization. Three weeks before Japan fell, the OWI finally prepared an official index of its propaganda directives, that is, of the official statement of what kinds of propaganda to make, what kinds not to make. The overseas units had been associated with the Metropolitan Shortwave. Personnel had been disciplined. Techniques had become more precise. Under the command of Lieutenant Commander Alexander Layton, an MD who was also a psychiatrist and anthropologist, careful techniques were devised for the analysis of Japanese and German morale. Comparable, though this similar work on Europe had been done by a staff associated with Harold Laswell. The propaganda expert, Leonard W. Dobb, had been appointed controlling and certifying officer for every single order of importance. The military relationship had been clarified. The War Department, acting through G2, had re-established a psychological warfare office under the new name of Propaganda Branch, under the successive commands of Lieutenant Colonel John B. Stanley, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Buttles, and Colonel Dana W. Johnston. The new branch undertook no operations whatever, but connected war departments with OWI and OSS for policy and liaison, and represented one half of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. An appropriate naval officer from the comparable office representing the other half at the weekly policy meetings of OWI. Military needs and psychological warfare have been settled by regarding the theaters in this respect as autonomous and leaving to their respective theater commanders the definition of their relationship with OWI and OSS and their use of each. OSS and OWI had passed the stage of rival growth and consulted one another enough to prevent operational interference. Each had sufficient military or naval supervision to prevent interference with cryptographic security, communication, and deception operations. Figure 17, Anti-Radio Leaflet Sometimes ground-distributed leaflets were used in an attempt to counteract enemy radio propaganda. This leaflet circulated in France by the Nazis uses the form of an allied leaflet and accuses the armed SS of wanting such things as a decent Europe and end to atrocious killings every 25 years and a worthy life. Allied broadcasters are identified as Jews. End of figure 17. Figure 18, anti-exhibit leaflet. In the China theater, we heard that the Japanese had organized a big exhibit in Canton showing the starved and apathetic population some pieces of shot-down planes as demonstration of defeat of American air power. We made up this leaflet quickly and dropped it on the city while the exhibit was still in progress. China, 1944.
End of figure 18. End of section 11. Read by Shauna in Baton Rouge, Louisiana.